0: Welcome back to another episode of What the HR, an award-winning podcast. I'm Jesse Novi,
1: and I'm Mike Tool. The What the HR podcast explores how to build people-centric businesses through modern practices and approaches. New episodes are released frequently, so don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss any episodes.
0: Welcome back to another episode of What the HR. Today, we're joined by Summer Davies, who is an award-winning leadership development expert with over 15 years of experience in cultivating thriving work environments where individuals feel equipped, capable, valued, and connected. She specializes in guiding emerging leaders to develop the mindset and tactical skills required to lead with impact, confidence, and empowerment while loving what they do. Throughout uh, her very impressive career, Summer has had the privilege of coaching, teaching, and studying leaders from around the globe. Her unique depth and breadth of experience has fostered an unending passion for helping managers embody the leader they aspire to be while enjoying the process of leading. In today's episode, we talk to Summer specifically about middle managers and the critical role that they play, um, how not... uh, investing in your middle managers, what kind of impact that has on them and the organization. Um, It's a conversation we haven't had yet and a really important one for organizations and folks within these positions. So I think you're really going to love this episode. As always, if you're enjoying our guests and our podcast topics please do us a huge favor, head on over to your favorite podcast platform, leave us a rating and review. Those rating and reviews go a long way in ensuring that our podcast episodes are getting in front of other HR professionals and business leaders. And as always, we appreciate you so much and we really hope you enjoy this episode. All right, Summer, well, welcome to the What the HR podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation today. We are as well. I know that we introduced you more formally um, in the intro of the podcast, but I would still love for you to just share a little bit about yourself with our listeners today. And then for our listeners, we're going to be talking about um, middle management today, specifically why so many middle managers struggle in that position and the impacts it has to an organization. So if you could maybe build upon in your intro, how you got into this line of work. Yeah, very happy to do that. And it, it really ties a little bit to
2: my bio. So as you know, I've spent a long time in the HR space, but this was not my planned profession. This was not where I thought I was going to go when I was young. In fact, I grew up as a, as a horsewoman and really thought that breeding horses was my jam. So I went to school. I have an undergraduate degree in equine reproduction. Uh, and I went out into the world thinking that's what I'm going to do. And as it does for many people, life didn't go that way for me um and i ended up working in a veterinary hospital and very quickly into that first role i was promoted and they asked me to lead the operations for this veterinary hospital i was 24 years old i had absolutely no leadership training i had legitimately no business leading a large scale operation like that especially a medical operation and you know really candidly it was a hot mess Um, And it was largely a hot mess because I had no skills in what I was trying to do. And that was a really painful experience that led me to go out looking for, how do you fix this? How do you make working not so painful, not so brutal? Um, I was pretty sure a lot of the problem was me. I just didn't know what about that was causing the problem. So uh, back at that time, and I'll, I'll share just a minute of this because it dates me, so I won't tell all the details, but I went to a bookstore, like an actual bookstore where they have actual books. And went looking for something that might help. And I picked up an old school um, leadership book. And I just started reading it and found the principles to resonate a lot. I started trying it and it worked. And that just kind of lit up this fire for me around this is really cool And coincidentally, a lot of what I'd learned about interactions with horses growing up were very similar to the types of things that I was experiencing in the workplace. And I found that that was just really consistently true, that the way we interact with each other um, is is really true, whether it was in a small-scale veterinary hospital in Colorado or in large global organizations, there were these really consistent red threads around what does it take to engage a team? What does it take to lead a team and get a group of people around the same purpose and, and be really productive in that way? So that that experience got me into this space of leadership development. and I had the privilege of doing it in Big organizations, little organizations, um, and at a global scale for for many, many years. And so now I'm just really fired up specifically about middle leaders, those people like kind of in the middle slice of organizations and emerging leaders, because I think that there is such potential for us to do better for those folks and have a tremendous impact on organizations, whether it's small or big organizations. Those folks are really the key to success, and, and I'm really passionate about it.
0: Before Mike asks his question, I just want you to define um, what emerging leader means to you because it might mean something different to those that are listening. I think that's a great question. So to me, an emerging leader
2: is somebody who is making the conscious decision that they want to lead people. So a lot of times that means that they are going from individual contributor to a people leader for the first time, but it might mean that they've led people for a little while and they're now just having this understanding or they're needing to make a career decision to say, yes, I want to continue going down the people leadership path versus, oh, I've tried this and this is not for me. And they are making some choices to go another way. So that can happen at some different places in an organization, but very often it happens kind of in that lower half of the organization as people are having that decision around their career.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, good good clarification. Thanks, Jess. So we're we're talking about middle management, emerging leaders, how they struggle. I want to get into a lot of different layers around that. Kind of let's start high level on generally speaking, some of the reasons why you see them struggling. Um, And then also, as we think about Five years ago versus today? Like, I'm really curious to see how things have changed as well uh, in this field since you got into it.
2: Both really good questions. So, let's start thinking about why do these folks struggle? And my observation is a couple of things. The first is often they don't have enough clarity around the transition that they're making, specifically around how they add value changes when they firmly move into people leadership, when that becomes the day job for them, and many have other other responsibilities, but the day job is leading people, right? Making that mental transition around how is it that I add value, I am no longer the superstar, right? Making all of the plays, doing all that my job, is to grow a team of superstars who can work together to add up to more than the sum of their parts. And that job is really different than being a tremendous individual contributor. And truthfully, most people end up in that seat because they were a tremendous individual contributor. And so helping them make that mental shift takes some time and takes some intentionality and a lot of times i think that that gets missed in the pace of organizations because we have a lot going on we're busy and we unfortunately especially um, in fast-paced organizations we make the misassumption that because somebody is a really superstar individual contributor that will somehow magically translate into superstar leadership skills and it can, but it needs some support and some intention. And what happens is over time, when that misstep of intentionality doesn't get addressed, it just continues to grow the, the crevasse. And the longer it goes, the harder it is for that person to put their hand up and say, I'm not really sure how I add value here. If you've been in that seat for two years and you raise your hand, you might think, oh my gosh, what are people going to think I've been doing for the last two years? And so it becomes a little bit of an unsafe space for them. So. I think intentionality around the transition is one of the reasons that they struggle. Um, And then I think the other big reason is they get a little lost in organizations. We get really excited when somebody is moving into first-time leadership. A lot of organizations have beautiful programs that they've crafted to help support that initial transition. And many organizations have or utilize beautiful programs for C-suite leaders or people who are moving into the C-suites. So we see so much value there. And then you've got this big, meaty chunk in the middle. And they have all sorts of different needs. They have all sorts of different experiences. And it can be a little bit hard to service their development. And so they get a little lost in the wash because there's some shiny things around them. So, um I think that that's my two big concerns for that group. Um, And yet they're so powerful. They're so impactful to every organization, whether you have 10 people in your business or a hundred thousand, that group, they're, uh, they're the juice for sure.
1: I agree. And uh, to your point where they, they may be rockstar individual contributors and then, and, and I've been in this situation. Then you go into a leadership position and it, for a lot of people, it's the first time they've kind of felt failure in mm. quite some time. Uh, and it's really hard to deal with that. And I'm I'm wondering how we measure those kind of first time or frontline leaders to make sure that they they don't feel that way. Because it is, it's, I mean, good or bad, sometimes you acquire a team that's new or struggling, whatever it may be, right? It, it's it's not because of you're a new manager and you're not doing the right things. And I'm wondering if, one, are we measuring the wrong things with these new leaders? And if so, what should you be measuring versus strictly performance, let's say, Mm -hmm. uh, understanding that, hey, this maybe takes time for these leaders to get their feet under them.
2: I think that that's really important. I think finding the place where you can balance elegantly measurement and speed Um, Mm -hmm. because we often want to say, okay, can they show, can they show traction in the first three months, six months, nine months, whatever that might be. And as you said, teams come in all forms and fashions. So you may end up with a team that is brand new, a team that came out of a really difficult situation, team that's working on something really hard. So your, your performance metrics may require quite a bit of flexibility, but I think irrespective of what the conditions of the team are, you can look at a few things. Um, firstly, looking at, does the team have a clear understanding of what success looks like for the collective? So are you able to come in as a leader and help them understand why, why do we work together? Are we a group of people who just work on individual projects and sometimes meet up in a conference room or are we actually a team? Are we actually working on something together and helping to define which of it is it and what is that something? So what is it we're trying to create together? Now, you may not have been able in the first number of months to define how will we work together? What is collaboration? you know, All that really good stuff that you'll get to down the road. But minimally, do we have a singular definition of what it is that we're trying to achieve here? If you've got a leader who can come in to do that, you're off to a relatively good start. And then I think the next piece is, do you have a leader who has the ability to help, and it may not happen right away, but in the first six months to a year, help people feel like they belong. Whether it's they belong on the team or they belong in the organization, that their unique skill set, their unique personality belongs and is adding value. Um, And belonging is different than fits in, right? That they truly belong and that they're seen. Those two things, if you can get there in the first chunk of leadership, you're off to a really strong start.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always felt like, one thing that middle managers need to do and some do it better than others and that's to and this is i would say this is maybe it's for smaller organizations as well maybe all of them but i've seen it more in in larger ones is their ability to filter a lot of the noise that comes from up top by the time it gets to their team i'm curious how you know what you've seen in terms of because that's a hard thing to do. Like it's you, you want to filter it, but you want to filter the right things. You don't want to piss off the person above you, but you also don't want to hurt the team below you. Like, how do you work through that as a middle manager? And maybe how do companies prioritize that, that kind of thing?
2: Oh, this is this is a good one that a lot of my clients work on. And I think it comes back to that clarity of purpose. If you together with your team or your leaders together with their team can help identify what is it that we're doing there's a lot of things going on in this organization especially really big organizations where they're doing lots of things right but our piece of that puzzle is xy and z and here's how we're going to deliver on that this is what success on our piece of the puzzle will be it can help so much cuz it can help that leader be able to identify Not that we're withholding information, but what information is a priority for these folks to get? How can I make sure that what I'm filtering down to my people is in service of what we're trying to achieve and what I'm filtering upwards to my superiors is in service of what we want to achieve? And that doesn't necessarily mean being untruthful or withholding things, but it does mean... At some point, you have to prioritize how you filter down to your folks, and that lens can help leaders identify what do they want to prioritize, and then what fights do they want to fight? As a leader, sometimes you're going to have to go and say, hey, I need to fight for resources or I need to fight for, you know, airtime, whatever the case might be. But again, if I'm super clear and my team is aligned with me about what it is we're trying to do, what's our piece in this puzzle that helps you make those types of decisions. And that can help the leader create that buffer so that your folks can focus on what they need to focus on and and do a good job without the noisy distraction, which I think happens more in big organizations, but I think also happens sometimes in small organizations.
0: You know, as as a part of that response, another thing that I'm thinking about is the importance of communication for those middle management down to The terminology I'm typically privy to is like desk level, like individual Mm -hmm. contributor level roles, Um, because I think it's easy, especially for those middle managers that were not so long ago in that individual contributor or desk level role. You kind of forget that as you get closer to the more critical information, that your people at the desk level are very removed from it. And so, making sure that you're packaging it in a way, especially if you've been brought along for a while, you know, if there's a a big project that they, that for confidentiality reasons, couldn't be shared down to the desk level, these middle managers have maybe been on this journey for weeks or maybe months, and their individual contributors are now being brought in for the first time. So, it's really critical that they package that in a way that helps those desk level employees understand the why and the how and how it impacts them and how they're going to get how they might have to do their job differently, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that is an interesting, like it's an actual skill that I think a lot of managers don't have and that either internal communication teams or their leaders or HR other resources in the organization could do a better job of helping that leader distill that information in the right Mm -hmm. way down to the desk level. So I don't know if there's a question there or not, Summer, but it was just an observation that I had as you were talking about the criticality of that role and then the dissemination of that information.
2: Oh, man, I think that's so right. And if we think back to that conversation around helping these individuals understand how they add value, this is one of the places where they can add amazing organizational value, right? Their job, if we're thinking about communicating bits of information, organizational change, reorgs, whatever is going on, their job isn't just to play operator and take a piece of information from the top and just move it directly down to the bottom, But rather to think about, I add value by making sure that this information is digestible and understandable for my people. So maybe that means I need to contextualize it in the space of the work that they do or the project that they're doing and how this change, for example, is going to make their life easier or faster, whatever the case might be. And that's really where a middle manager can add value. But if they don't have clarity around that, that's some of the value that they're adding, they may think, okay, my job is either just to protect my people always, which can create some unfortunate consequences, or I just hand the information over and they'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we help managers understand this is the job, is helping be that conduit between what's happening at the tops of organizations and your team, then they can start to understand, okay, investing time and thinking through that, preparing for those conversations, tailoring my messages where appropriate, that's the work and that's where I Add Value can help them understand what they can do with that type of information and with those types of tasks.
0: Yeah. And then I think the other tricky part to that is too is These middle managers can sometimes be put in this weird position where they're asked to execute on something that maybe they aren't even bought into themselves, but they know that as a leader of the organization... I have have to be flexible and agile, and even though I've maybe voiced that I'm not in agreement with this, the organization has made the decision to do this. So now I have to go relay something that I'm not entirely on board with and get my team rallied around it in a positive way. So I think that can be tricky and could use support and finesse as well for for middle managers. And that's such a skill to be able to
2: understand, okay, I can voice my opinions upwards in a professional way. And here's how I do that if I'm not agree- in agreement. And at the same time, how do I bring my people along in a way that feels authentic? Um, you know, I'm not just giving them a line I don't believe in, but I, it's still my job to bring them along. So how do I do that authentically and stay true to myself in a moment where maybe I'm not totally comfortable with what's going on? And that will eventually happen at some point in everyone's professional career, probably.
1: So we've all heard people leave managers, not companies. Do you agree with that statement? A
2: hundred thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not only do I agree, but there is a there is an ocean of data and evidence that confirms that that is true. Um, mm-hmm. That just as we were talking about, the manager has a enormous influence on how you experience your organization. There's some research that says it can be up to 79% of how you experience your organization is directly influenced by your manager. Um, and I actually just read another really interesting study I can I can share in the comments if people want it, but that says that managers have a greater impact on your mental well-being than your spouse does. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we I think about that. that, this is absolutely true, right? Your manager's a big deal.
1: So I, I agree 100% what I don't like about the statement is that it lets companies off the hook a little bit. So the way that I always think of it is people leave companies that don't invest in their managers. That's that's how I look at it because there is, right, we're talking about it right now. I, I don't like all that onus put on the managers because the, the company, and there are some bad managers, right? There's a lot of, it just, it happens. But mm-hmm. I also think that there are a lot of changes within organizations where senior leaders maybe do get a little bit disconnected from that front line. So I'm curious when you're working with clients and you're maybe helping these middle managers or entry level managers is, are there some changes that have to happen above them as well in order for kind of the culture to thrive? Because I mean, I've seen it so many times where it two, three layers above that middle manager, they they truly are fairly disconnected from the rest of the organization.
2: It's absolutely true. And what needs to happen is just that buy-in and belief at the most senior levels of organizations when they believe that middle managers and frontline managers are the key to success, when they recognize that, gosh, we are four or five levels away from the people who actually build our product, sell our product, talk to our customers, whatever the case might be for your organization. When you've got senior leaders who are cognizant of that and recognize the importance of that middle slice of the organization as really the lifeblood for your future, then you get organizations that are really concerned about investing and mm-hmm. become the types of value-driven organizations that folks want to work for and then, yeah. then create um these types of strong leaders. So it becomes a bit of an infinite circle, right? One feeds after the other. Um, Can great leaders survive in bad organizations? Sure. Or unvalued organizations? They're there. Absolutely. For all sorts of reasons. And the opposite is true. Um, But I think that that type of realization, and there's all sorts of stories throughout history about organizations that have learned that lesson the really hard way and have had to make massive changes. So one of the stories I tell so often when I'm working with uh, organizations who are thinking about building a strategy to help these people and and need some buy-in around why does it matter to have middle and frontline managers who are skilled. I tell um, a NASA story. I don't, know if, uh, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember the Challenger disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a little kid when that happened, but one of the really tragic things about the challenger uh, experience and for those who don't know challenger was a space shuttle that nasa built in the mid 80s it went up seconds after it went up it exploded and all seven people on board were killed and it was on live tv it was really really tragic but the the bigger tragedy behind that was people knew years before that the space shuttle was going to explode there was a handful of employees who knew the days before that there was no chance it was not going to explode and worked incredibly hard. There's all this documentation and memos where they tried to escalate it to their managers and say, it's going to it's gonna blow up. We need to stop the launch. And they didn't have skilled managers who knew what to do with that and were able to bring it to a senior level that would mm. be able to action it. Um, and so that's a tragic and really deep story about why this is so important. So when I talk to organizations about which one do you want to be, you want to be the one that knows if if something's going to blow up. And um, often it is powerful to remind um, folks in the more senior roles that, hey, there may be a challenger disaster hiding in the corners of your organization somewhere. You, you definitely want to have the managers who are going to bring it out and say, hey, let's, let's fix it. Because not only am I 100% sure that people in every organization know about that today, they also know how to fix it. So if mm. you can get that level moving up and engaged, so much safer and the vice versa is true, right? The next great idea for your organization is already there. It's living in the head of somebody in your organization. Hopefully they work for a manager who can help bring it out.
1: Right, no, that's that's a great example. And I didn't know that, that's a wild story. Um, yes. And when we talked about senior leaders getting disconnected, I think your answer, solves that so essentially and correct me if i'm wrong but it's giving your managers the skills but also trusting them and believing in them and making them feel empowered to do the job that you assign them to do so it's that yeah okay that makes complete sense and the other thing that anytime we talk about leadership i think of michael scott in the office (laughs) and i because uh like right now i think of what I've seen at least out there talking to customers is that companies are losing people like right at that pivotal time in their skills journey, like right when they're kind of ramped up, you know, like it's become acceptable to jump every couple of years. And that's kind of when you're hitting that sweet spot. So I'm wondering, and I don't know if this is a middle manager thing or just a, a company thing, um, but I'll ask it anyway. So like, is, Is the Michael Scott approach where it's like, hey, you're focusing on culture and retention over performance all day long, uh, which ultimately, as you see in the show, they outperform everybody. But is that the right thing to focus on? Like, should retention and culture trump performance in the organization from a manager, like KPI perspective?
2: Oh man, there's so much, there's so much in there. And Michael Scott is one of my favorite TV bosses as well. I absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Sam. I use him as an example all the time. Um, I think especially he's, he's, he's a useful one for this particular question. We're thinking about long-term talent pipeline management, right? We know that having people jump at that moment is brutally expensive for your organization. Um, for any organization, when you've got somebody who's been enrolled for two, three years as a leader and they jump. That is, that's, that's painful to your talent, to your talent Mm -hmm. budget, right? And the thing I love about Michael Scott is he is not a bad person. So if we think about him, he's not a mean person. He's not a, he's not a sociopath waking up every morning saying, gosh, I really hope that I make people feel uncomfortable all day and I micromanage them and they hate working for me. And I become an iconically bad manager. That is not what's going on in his head. And that is also not what's going on in most poor managers' heads. Most people don't wake up intending to be a bad manager. They just lack understanding and intentionality. And that's what he lacks as well. So I think he's a great example for that for that point. And then to your question around should we focus on, on culture over performance? I think you got to do both. I don't think you can ignore Performance is just not. I can't be Pollyanna and say, "Oh, just focus on your culture and belonging, and and magic will happen." Although I actually believe that that's true, that will never fly in a boardroom. And if we think about being HR professionals, and you want that seat at the table, you have to come with both, or you're not going to get airtime.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Right. So finding a way to balance the the way you measure that and whatever works in your organization, I think, is really important. And when we forget to measure culture and we forget to measure the way we're developing people intentionally, that's where you end up performing yourself into the ground.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of my curiosity comes from the sales side, just because that's the world I live in. And mm-hmm. I think you you see, I'm not sure, at least in sales organizations, that people are given enough time to kind of develop the skills, right? Because mm-hmm. it's so performance-based. Right. I know a lot of people that have moved on very quickly from roles um, that were fully capable and went on to have good careers in other companies that gave them time to thrive. So that's where that question more was coming from is, you know, when it's when it's solely focused on performance, I just think it's it makes it really tough.
2: Yeah, what I would say to, to folks who are in the HR space is if you're going to fight a fight, fight this fight, make sure that the metrics you're considering are both and that you're looking at both. Because if we just look at performance, it's such a short-term strategy. And where you want to get really concerned is this next generation coming into the workforce is not going to let that fly. Generations before us have been okay with that, come to expect it, been kind of less okay with it. And now we're with with a generation that's not going to buy it. Um, And so if we can't get ahead of that, that's where the talent the talent wars are really going to start is which organizations can meet that need and balance it in the right way.
0: Yeah, and I would hope that an org, a sales organization, to to Mike's example, would be thoughtful about okay, this person is a high performing individual contributor. They've never managed people before. There's a transitional period, such as like mm-hmm. when somebody comes into an organization for the first time. You know, we I've always said in HR like don't expect to get value out of that employee for like six to twelve months. Well, I don't think that we should necessarily treat somebody who's being promoted any differently. You know, this is and they might know the organization and they've got, you know, a knowledge base that a, a new employee just coming into the organization doesn't have, but they're also having to flex a muscle. That they've mm-hmm. never had to flex before, and we need to give them like grace and time to be to build that muscle before we start being critical about their sales metrics and goals and their team, you know, meeting certain sales metrics and goals. So I saw Mike. I saw you took yourself off of mute. Did you want to say something there?
1: Well, no. I I uh, I just wanted to agree. I mean, I think that's and I think there's a that's a miss within organizations. And Summer, you're the really expert here, but it is. It seems like there's. There's more grace for a brand new person in a, like a contributing role, like a sell individual role versus when you move into that manager role, because you were already successful, you're supposed to be successful in one month. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I think that that's absolutely true. The other one I would highlight that I see often in organizations is we very often expect more out of an internal promote than we do from an external hire. So while there are good reasons for that, right? The external hire needs to learn the culture, they don't know anybody, all that stuff, they got to get their 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 footing. Um sometimes the gap in what we expect is is totally unfair to those internal promotes because we're asking them to do something totally new. Very often, we're asking them to lead a team that is filled with people who didn't get the role. Maybe they went for it and they didn't get it or used to be their peers. So now you're leading your peers and you've got to change the relationship, which is hard. Um, and we expect those people to be able just to hit the ground running, even though they have their own change curve that they're going through. And the the catching up that they have to do in changing those relationships, getting their footing, understand how to add value, reestablishing themselves in the organization as a leader or a senior leader or whatever, whatever the case is, that's really hard. And sometimes we put unfair expectations on those internal promotes and make it such that it's not safe for them to be able to say, hey, I don't know how to do this because I don't want all these people who already know me to think I don't know what I'm doing. And that becomes a vicious cycle for some some of those folks. And so I think we have to be really careful about the expectation of of the time to impact for those people um, and be mindful about they may need development you didn't expect. Just because you think they should know this doesn't necessarily mean that they do. And can we make a place where they can get that development? Um, Because if you do... And you invest in them for six months or nine months, they may end up being one of the long-term absolute superstars for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you don't, they may just hide in that role forever, and that can be damaging.
1: Yeah. So right in the beginning of the podcast, um, I had asked what was different five years ago. I know we got kind of sidetracked, but you, you you just mentioned something in terms of generations coming in and. I want to pick your brain on how things are different. And I recently read an article about how the the bully coach no longer can make it in sports. It was a really good article written, and it it basically it's that kind of dictator style that was really evident in kind of old school sports where it was you know my way or you're off the team type of thing. And and I look at the generations coming into the workforce. Sometimes I'll look at high school and college coaches because they're they're the ones managing, right, the, the workforce that's about to come in. And what you've seen is that more of like the player's coach um, is is what these these kids expect, right? They want somebody to unlock their potential. Um, you don't have to be my friend, but you got to respect me as a person type of thing. And I'm curious how that's looked in the workforce with these middle managers and what it was like maybe five, 10 years ago versus what you're seeing today.
2: Oh, I think this is... This is something we will have lots more conversations about in the next couple of years as this generation starts to really establish themselves in the workforce. But it brings to mind my other favorite TV boss, uh, Ted Lasso, because I think he is yes. the perfect <laughs> example of the type of leader who will be successful going forward. He's that that type of people's coach, as you said. Yep. Um, if you haven't watched Ted Lasso, get yourself some popcorn. Binge it. It's <laughs> the best. Um So when we think about the experience of these individuals, the people who are somewhere between, you know, 22 and 30, getting into the workforce, getting into their first leadership roles, man, they have had a wild ride, right? They experienced a form of parenting that was very different. So if you think about their early formation, some of the expectations that they had of the world because of the early Parenting they had their post Columbine, so they experienced an educational experience that is different than uh, people who are a little bit older did. Um, many of them did not experience some of the big events that that older generations did, so they have a different perspective of the world and a different expectation of things like recognition, inclusion, development. And they are a force as they come into the working world and we see boomers start to retire, that is a pretty significant shift in expectations. Additionally, many of them started working during COVID years. So their expectation around flexibility, work environment, it's just gonna be different because that's what they did. I think one of the things we have to watch out for is there seems to be a bit of assumption that if you've got a all remote or mostly remote workforce that that doesn't mean you have culture which is wildly untrue you absolutely have culture it's just different so you've got to be able to navigate how does culture live in a virtual space what are those cultural norms that you're creating even if people are not coming into the office regularly um i think we're going to see a really interesting battleground over the next year or two about that in the office not in the office situation i'm not sure who's going to win that fight um, I have a favorite team, but we'll we'll see what happens. Um, so I think when we think about those folks, they have an expectation of a high level of development. They've had a lot of growth and learning. They've always had access to information because they've always had the internet, um, and they have a high level of expectation around customization and personalization. They want an experience that's personalized to them. Netflix is their only understanding of television i have really young kids who are younger than this generation um they don't my children don't know what commercials are because they grew up on netflix so when we think about that shift this middle generation has a little bit of understanding of that but they're going to be kind of in that space where they expect things to cater we think you like this here's more of this we think you learned this you like that you want more of this um so we've got to be ready with whether it's HR tech that's delivering those solutions, whether it's organizational systems that we're putting into place to be able to customize and and meet that need for these folks. And we can do it. It's The technology is absolutely there. We just have to be open to bringing it into these types of spaces. I don't know if that answered your question all the way, but that's kind of my thinking yeah,
1: here. Yeah, you know, it, it absolutely did. My kids don't know what commercials are either, so... <laughs> I make them watch Hulu every once in a while, just so there's a commercial.
2: It's good for him. Yeah, it's good for them. They don't understand like you pausing is not always a thing. That's just you yeah. know, this is not a concept that they have. That's right. Yep.
0: I I wanted to build upon that, and I think that that was great. Summer is let. I think we've we've touched on it a little bit with some of the answers that you've provided, but I think we should dive in deeper to just the greater impacts of an organization that doesn't prioritize their middle managers or forgets about their middle managers. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about retention and turnover and losing those employees right at sort of the prime time of of leadership and the impact that they're making to the organization. But are there other things that you feel like we've missed or um, maybe we should peel apart some additional layers of the onion regarding any of the items that we've already talked about in terms of risk? Yeah, I wanna look
2: at it actually from, it is, a risk, it, it is a risk angle, but if we turn the prism just a little bit uh, and we think about innovation. So if you think about it as loss of innovation or opening up the possibility of innovation, the pace of innovation that we are experiencing today is unlike anything we've ever experienced in the history of humanity. And all projections say that we'll just continue to speed up. So the rate at which we want new ideas, bigger ideas, better ideas is just getting faster and faster, which means you've got to get better no matter the size of your organization or what it is you do at enabling innovation to come out. And while great ideas sometimes happen at the C-suite, the reality is your frontline employees and your middle employees know what you do best. They know your customer best. So that's Probably where those great ideas live so when we think about enabling that being able to unlock that potential at a faster pace and in a more sustainable way becomes a critical priority and that's what this middle manager population that's where this lives one of my favorite stories is about the happy meal um happy meal wasn't a thing until like i think the late 70s early 80s and there was a regional manager at mcdonald's who just said you know, we've got this kid's meal, it's not that popular. I think we should call it a happy meal. And they said, cool, let's do it. And now happy Meal's a thing, right? But he only identified that because he happened to be really close to the customer. Um, and organizations who aren't enabling that level to be innovative, to be creative, and then to be able to filter those ideas upward are going to miss out on those great ideas and they'll end up becoming blockbuster. And so when we think about the risk, it's don't lose those brilliant. You have brilliant people on your teams who have phenomenal ideas. They might have some wonky ideas that won't work, but they may also have the idea that takes your organization from where you are now to where you want to be, or the idea you didn't even know you needed. And now it's going to become an iconic part of your culture. So I think when we think about risk. Yes, you have a risk in your talent pipeline in turnover and retention and that sort of thing. You also have a risk to your product, to your brand or your business in a loss of innovation that that you may not unlock because it really lives in the heads of those people who do the do every day.
0: Yeah. So I know we're getting uh, close to needing to wrap up here, but I think that there's one question that we haven't addressed that to me is a little bit like the elephant in the room. So I I wanted to bring this up before we wrap things up today, but we've, we've talked about how often these middle managers get into this role because they were really strong individual contributors. So what can organizations do to really vet out those individual contributors that we're thinking about for middle manager roles to ensure that not only the skill is there, but like the will or desire is there. And then maybe even from like a leadership potential perspective, there are some behaviors that they have observed in that uh, employee as an individual contributor that leads them to believe that even though they haven't managed people before, they have some strong skills and potential to, to be an effective leader. I have a pretty dramatic stance on this. Um, I don't care
2: at all if your candidates have leadership skills. Don't care at all. I don't care if they can give feedback. I don't care if they can delegate work. I can teach that to anyone. Um, What I care about is, do they have the ability to demonstrate empathy? And do they care about the success of your brand? If they have those two things, we can build every other skill. We can teach people how to do that. I think empathy is the number one most overlooked skill. And if you have somebody who can empathize, they can show that kindness and they love your brand, you are golden. As long as you don't mix the next step, which is teach them, teach them the skills, get them into some formal training, whether you build a program internally, whether you buy one off the shelf, whether you bring in coaches like me, whatever the case is, teach them early. Because as soon as somebody steps into that role, they start building the neuropathways of behavior around how they're going to demonstrate those skills. So the sooner you can teach them and have them build those neuropathways the right way and effectively, the better off you're going to be and the better off that person's going to be. The second half of that is leverage gig work. That is really popular with this younger generation. Let them try it. Put them in a six-month assignment to lead a project team or to... Lead a, you know, a think tank or something like that so that they can go try it and see, do I like it and do they show potential? Mm -hmm. That can be a really powerful strategy to start vetting some of these folks and and let them tip their toe in the water without actually jumping all the way in. Financially, it's safer for the organization because you don't have to make that big investment. And developmentally, it can be really powerful for the individual.
0: Awesome. Thank you for sharing your viewpoint on that. Um, Mike, anything else before I wrap up with Summer?
1: No, no. Unbelievable stuff. Thank you, Summer.
0: Great. Well, good. Well, Summer, can you share with our listeners where they can find you, uh, where you like to connect with people, and um, anything else that you want to make sure our listeners know about you or the services that you provide?
2: Yeah. One of the best places to find me is on LinkedIn. I have a page for my business called LeaderShop. You can either find me Summer Davies or you can look up LeaderShop. LeaderShop is really for people who want to engage in a conversation, be a part of a community talking about these things on LinkedIn. So you can join there if that's for you. Otherwise, just follow me on LinkedIn. Um, As I said, I advocate that organizations do something for their emerging and middle leaders. If you are not in an organization that already has something tremendously built out, or you've you've spotted one or two folks and you're saying that person could absolutely fly with a little bit of development, I offer a program just for that type of type of situation. It's a skills focused program, uh, it's 90 days, and it's really geared at that customized skill building type of uh, need for emerging leaders. So you can check that out. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can also find my website, which is leader. I can give you all the information for there. And if you head over there, right now I have an assessment up there. I hear a lot of people worried that they might be a micromanager or a Michael Scott manager. I have an assessment up there that you can take to see if if that's the case for you. It will only be up for probably another 30 days and then I'll change it out with a different assessment. So pop over there. I've always got new stuff and tools on my website.
0: Wonderful. Well, thanks, Summer. It was an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, maybe we can have you back again in the future because there's always so much to talk about when it comes to leadership. There is. I would love that. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcshirm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use code WHATTHEHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next episode.